It's interesting to me that uh, Thomas Jefferson was one of the minority of our founding fathers that was not actually a Christian. He was what we would call today a deist. He believed that there was a creator God, but one that was not involved in the day-to-day actions of his people. One that created the universe, got it going, and has mostly left it alone. He admired the teachings of Jesus, though, Thomas Jefferson, at least some of them. So he actually took the Bible and a pair of scissors and some glue and basically made his own Bible where he cut out the parts that he didn't like, tossed them into the trash, took out the parts that he liked, put them where he wanted them, and thus made his own what I call a Frankenstein Bible. So that's really what it is when you really stop to think about it. His spirit is a well and alive today in today's society, isn't it? I've enca- uh, many people know this passage that we're talking about today, but most people just focus on the first two words. Judge not, as if that's the entirety of chapter 7 of this beautiful chapter, and seemingly discard the rest. And you know, it's funny, I, I've encountered plenty of people as I'm talking to them about Jesus, as I'm sharing about my faith, and I'm sharing that, you know, we're all sinners, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, we all need the forgiveness that Jesus offers us, and it's somewhere around that point where inevitably they speak up and go, whoa man, judge not, suddenly becoming a theologian. <laughs> but... And, and implying by saying that, you know, that I have no biblical rights to speak truth into their life. That I have no rights to be able to correct them in pointing out that they are sinners, as we all are. The question is, are they right? Is that what Jesus is cautioning us against? Or is there some secret 11th commandment that says, thou shalt be nice? Or is this simply a case of today's culture adapting their own version of the Jefferson Bible? The important question we have to answer this morning is, well, what do we mean by judge? I think that's an important thing that we need to cover. Well, when you go to a court of law, what does the judge do? Well, they hear the case and they are the ones that have the power to pronounce you guilty or not guilty, and lay down the appropriate punishment. And let's be fair. Some Christians do that. Oh, that person can't really be a Christian if they listen to that kind of music. Oh, that that person struggles with that kind of sin? Oh, I'm not sure they can ever be a Christian. Oh, that person's going to hell. Is that what we're supposed to do? In fact, Matthew chapter 13 tells us precisely not to do that. I can't wait to get to that chapter. I feel like I'm bringing that parable up of the wheat and the tares every couple of weeks. But frankly, that last sentence we should never say without the word unless. You're going to hell unless. should never come with that kind of finality. I'll, I'll tease Matthew 13 that much. However... Our our culture seems to lose track of the fact that there's a difference between judging someone and warning someone. Judging somebody and correcting someone. Christians and not yet Christians do this all the time. 
Let's just say I ran a convenience store and I happen to catch you stealing from my store. Uh, am I judging you by catching you and telling you that you, I caught you stealing from my store? I'm not judging you. And in fact, I have, I, I have the opportunity to warn you that you will stand before a judge for your actions. I can tell you that you will stand before somebody who can pronounce you guilty and has the power to punish. Me pointing that out is not judgment. It's merely a warning of a future judgment to come. That is what we're called to do as Christians, not to lay down the judgment ourselves. That's what it's really getting at here. Because as a Christian, I have no power or authority to declare anyone guilty. All I can say is I know what the law of God says and which we will all be judged by someday. I understand that why people don't like that. That's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me to point out. But the way I understand it, it's unclear to, it's unkind to be unclear. It's unkind to withhold truth when you know it can be helpful. Now look, I am not mad whatsoever with anyone in the world who's living in a whole lifestyle of sin. That's not for me to judge. How could I? I mean, they are living of the world. How can I expect them to not be of the world? In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul basically acknowledges that fact and goes on to say, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? I think that needs to be our attitude. That I, I don't think I've ever come down harshly on someone who is not yet a Christian for sins or sinful lifestyles or actions. That's not really what I'm about. I have people inside the church. But in either case, it's been for somebody's help, for their betterment, for correction, for their growth. I think anytime we correct somebody, it ought to be for their benefit, right? I mean, let's... I mean, think about it. How much do you have to hate somebody to not warn them about impending danger? I mean, think about it. We, you guys know this town. And you guys know Route 9 basically becomes Main Street. <laughs> and we've all seen people coming way too fast down that road. Now imagine if I see somebody barreling down Main Street going 70 miles an hour, and I see somebody to start to walk out to cross the street. How much do I have to hate somebody to not say anything, to not try to stop that impending disaster. And if we're all on the same page with that, how much worse is it to withhold the truth of the gospel from someone, to just let them slip into eternity without telling them that there's a way to peace on the other side and find that? How much do I have to hate somebody to not tell them that because I simply didn't want to be accused of judging someone? So to withhold judgment and so as Christians, what we really do, we withhold true judgment in its truest sense of the word. We leave that to God and we correct each other in a spirit of gentleness for the purpose of restoration, as Chrissy read, from a, read, read for us earlier today in Galatians chapter 6. And the reason this needs to be our approach is because of what verse 2 says. 
where it says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. How horrifying would it be if God judged us the way we judge each other in this world? Oh, that would be horrible, wouldn't it? Especially in this overly critical cancel culture we find ourselves in. And where just one comment taken out of context from 15 years ago could cause you to lose your job and ruin your reputation. That's the world that we're living in now. You know, for a culture that often says, judge not, that's pretty judgy, isn't it? That's, that's pretty heavy. Because, I mean, frankly, nobody wants to be judged under that level of scrutiny because nobody can and stand the test. I mean, no one has always been mature. Nobody has always walked with integrity or never made a comment that couldn't be ripped out of context and painted in a bad light. Well, I suppose I know one man who did. I do know one man who lived an absolutely perfect life, who never sinned in word, in thought, or in action. Who then would give his life to pay for my completely stained record of sin. And yet, even then, in the cancel culture of his day, they made up accusations and lied about what he did and crucified him anyway. What does that tell us? It's proof you could literally be perfect and people will still manufacture something against you out of just hatred for who you are. Be sure to teach that to your kids and your grandkids. That it doesn't matter how good you are. People will still hate you and slander you in all kinds of ways. You just need to walk in integrity and live the life God has called you to live. So let's think about this critically. Is This the kind of culture, as we look at our world, is this the kind of culture we want? Is this the kind of culture we want to live in? Because where's the room for grace? Where's the room for forgiveness, for restoration, reconciliation? It it doesn't, the, the framework isn't there anymore. Yet biblical Christianity, as we understand it, provides the perfect framework for forgiveness and grace for a whole culture, where there's an understanding that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. When you view life like that, it encourages people not to hide their sins out of fear of judgment, but, when, but rather we all recognize We're all sinners. We all have mistakes. We've all done things that we are glad are not broadcast over the internet. And it frees us to be honest with our shortcomings in a culture of grace to find forgiveness and find community amongst the saints to uphold us even in our mistakes and our sins. You know, my pastor told me a story of a time where he actually met a, um, a sex offender. And they met for a long time. 
And he told me this story about how they were both just crying together as this man was confessing his sins, expressing such regret over the things that he had done. And by the, 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 over the course of their conversation, they, he, he talks about how they wanted to change his life and how he wanted to change things. And he pray, they prayed together. And my pastor even hugged him after the fact at the end of their meeting. It reminds me of that hymn that we sing that says, His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. I want to live in a world where stories like that can happen. Where people will make mistakes, but they can find grace, where they can find community rather than judgment. And that can only be found in a gospel-centered culture where the kindness and goodness of God is expressed through his people rather than a pointing finger and accusational words. And yet there are going to be consequences for people's actions. We shouldn't pretend that there shouldn't be consequences. If that man even looks at the children's ministry, that guy's a dead man. And my pastor sure expressed that. But the measure we use must be one of love and grace for the purpose of reconciliation. Now, our problem is we so often don't strike this gospel-based balance in our assessment of others. And we see that in, beginning in verse 3, where it says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And we see from looking at this that the main thing Jesus is railing at isn't judgment as a whole, but hypocrisy. Having one set of rules for yourself and another set of rules for everyone else. And the Pharisees, who I'm sure Jesus had in mind as he was talking about, these were the worst offenders at this. If their horse fell into a pit on the Sabbath day, of course they, it's okay for them to be able to get their buddies together and help the horse get out of the pit. But when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day, the, the lame man who couldn't walk, as soon as he healed him, he got in trouble for carrying his mat home. What hypocrisy. These same people, uh, we read in John chapter 8, that they were ready to let a woman be stoned to death for adultery just so they could win an argument with Jesus. What's more important, an argument or somebody's life? And by the way, Last I checked, it takes two people to cause adultery. Where's the man? <laughs> Do the math. <laughs> I mean, you see the obvious hypocrisy. And seriously, how many of you guys would like to be led? I mean, those were the spiritual leaders of Israel 2,000 years ago. Think about that for a second. How would you like to be led by that kind of leadership? That would be horrible because nobody wants to be led or even receive advice from a hypocrite. Think about it. You, how, how, what sense does it make to have a raging alcoholic running an AA meeting? You wouldn't want that. What good is that? 
Would you take marriage counseling from somebody who's been divorced three times? Would you take a woodworking class by somebody who has three fingers? No. Those are all examples of somebody who has something seriously wrong in their own life that they need to fix before they have any business helping others in those areas. You want somebody who's had some level of success on their path to lead you, to guide you, to give you advice. Which is why you want the guy in an AA meeting. You want to be led by the guy who hasn't touched a drink in 20 years. Doesn't matter what he was in the past, but what he is now, that's who you want to be led by. You want to receive marriage counseling from somebody who's had four kids and ten grandkids. You got a point there. <laughs> You're ruining my point, Ruthie. <laughs> True, yes. Some qualifiers still remain, but you see the point I'm driving at here. Which is, by the way, exactly why James tells us that not many of you should become teachers. Because I can't stand up here from the pulpit and tell you guys to do something that I'm not doing in my own life. That's why anyone who desires to be a pastor or an elder needs to live an exemplary life. One that models this kind of grace and integrity that we're talking about. Not always perfectly. Everybody makes mistakes. But that's the lifestyle you need to be living. So getting back to our text, what are we to make of this rather humorous example of the man with a log sticking out of his own eye? trying to help somebody with a tiny little speck, a little bit of sawdust in their eye by comparison. Does this teach that we are supposed to suspend all judgment? Is that the illustration Jesus is using? No. It teaches us to first get the log out of our own eye, and then, once we've cleaned up our own hypocrisy, then you'll be able to see clearly to help your brother get the speck out. It actually teaches that we are to speak truth into people's lives, but we need to do it the right way. It gives us two important caveats here. First, you deal with your own sins. You can't speak into people's lives and be a hypocrite about it. And secondly, you help your brother with the speck in his own eye. We don't just point it out and laugh at it. We help them with it. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back... That whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's an important distinction. You see, as Christians, we don't wag our finger from afar. We get there on their level. We go to them when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ wandering from the truth. And we go and help them with that speck in their eye, knowing that he helped us with the log in our own. So if I see a brother just for instance falling into alcoholism, I'm called to go there and help. And it sounds a little bit like this. I'm almost done. Please pay attention. It sounds like this. 
hey, brother, you know, I've been watching some of your posts online. I've been seeing what you've been putting on social media. And, you know, I have my concerns. Look, I get it. I was where you were too. Ten years ago, I was doing the same thing you did. In fact, I was worse. I was struggling with two other major sins that everybody else could see. So I understand it. But I know you. You're better than this. And you're not alone in this. We're going to walk together on this. And I'm going to be there with you every step of the way. We're going to grab coffee every Tuesday afternoon. And we're going to talk about this. I'm going to be with you and for you through this. I am praying and I am paying for you for that coffee. So let's walk this journey together. That's how a Christian removes the speck from someone else's eye. That's how we judge one another. That's how we do all of that. Whether that be alcoholism in that, in that circumstance, pornography, anger, other temptations, marital issues, whatever it might be. That's the attitude. That's the tone that it takes. And when it's done right, it doesn't feel like judgment and condemnation. It feels like grace. It feels like restoration. It feels like an invitation to be who Christ has called you to be. May that be what we are known for. May that be what this church is known for. And with all that being said... You know, this is the same command, this is the same sermon as Matthew chapter 5. We're still called to be salt and light in this community. We're still called to be a preserving agent and be and preserve this culture that we have. So we're still going to stand for what is right. We will still point out sin and call it for what it is because we love people enough to tell them the truth. But this is how we do it. We'll do it in a way that shows that we are part of another kingdom. That we're part of the kingdom of heaven that we've been learning about. Where we follow the example of Jesus Christ our King. Thanks be to God. Amen.